Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you as ever. Now in the wee hours of May 1st, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, I guess like everybody, I'm extremely alarmed at the blatant nuclear threats which are now emerging from Moscow. This past Monday, April 25th, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov openly broached nuclear war in an interview with Russian state television. Quote, the danger is serious, real. We must not underestimate it. End quote. And recalling the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, he said that Moscow and Washington back then had understood the rules of conduct between the superpowers, but, quote, now there are few rules left, end quote. On Friday, April 29th, Margarita Simonian, the editor-in-chief of the Kremlin propaganda outlets RT and Sputnik, posted on the social media platform Telegram, following the explosions in the uh, Russian city of Belgorod, which may have been due to a rare Ukrainian strike on a target within Russia, although we don't know that. Quote, the Anglo-Saxons publicly encourage Ukraine to take their hostilities into Russian territory, and they give them the means to carry that plan out. What choice do you leave us, idiots? The total annihilation of what remains of Ukraine? Question mark. A nuclear strike? Question mark. End quote. Open, undisguised threats of a nuclear strike and total annihilation from the editor-in-chief of RT, which provides a platform for such supposed progressives as Lee Camp and Chris Hedges. And on the subject of supposed progressives, I note that uh, Noam Chomsky who we discussed on our last podcast, was featured in a uh, Zoom presentation on Friday, April 29th, along with Daniel Ellsberg, on nuclear dangers in Ukraine. Now, I did not listen to it, but I am going to wager that there's a couple of points which he failed to make. The first being how capitulation to Putin's aggression is incentivizing nuclear threats, and therefore the stockpiling of warheads and missiles to back up the threats. And I can be fairly certain that Chomsky didn't say this because I uh, didn't make this point, because everything that he's been saying about the war thus far has been advocating capitulation to Putin, as we ranted in our last podcast, where he is lecturing to the Ukrainians that the status of Crimea is off the table, quote unquote, it should be ceded to Russia, essentially, which means betraying the Crimean Tartars to certain persecution and possible genocide. Now, contrast the position of the uh, Tartar Majlis, their assembly, which had been recognized under Ukrainian rule as having jurisdictional autonomy, but um, is now in exile and diaspora and meeting cybernetically because it has been officially banned in Russia annexed Crimea. And in March, the Majlis issued a resolution formally demanding 
the return of Crimea to Ukrainian rule. Quote, the reestablishment of the territorial integrity of Ukraine within its internationally recognized borders, including the Republic of Autonomous Crimea, should be an obligatory condition for any negotiations between Ukrainian representatives and the aggressor state, end quote. The aggressor state obviously being Russia. So ceding Crimea or the Donbass or any other piece of Ukrainian territory to Putin is telling every despot and would-be expansionist around the world that getting nuclear weapons and threatening to use them is a good way to get what you want. And it is also disincentivizing nuclear disarmament. I will recall once again the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, signed by Ukraine and the Great Powers after uh, Ukraine gave up upwards of 2,000 nuclear warheads left on its territory after the collapse of the Soviet Union and turned them over to Russia in exchange for what were called security assurances under the memorandum that its territory and sovereignty would be protected and that the world powers would take action on Ukraine's behalf if its territory and sovereignty came under threat. So if Ukraine continues to be destroyed and is forced to cede parts of its territory, or worse yet, comes entirely under Russian occupation or annexation, as now seems less likely than it did a month ago, thanks to the strength of the Ukrainian resistance, which has surprised the world. But this, if such capitulations were forced upon Ukraine, this would send a message to every state that has nuclear weapons. Don't ever give them up. You'll be overrun by your enemies. Disarmament is fatal. So, you know, you can go on, all you Chomsky heads out there, about the uh, the threats of standing up to Russia, which I acknowledge. But please, let's also have some acknowledgement of the threats of not standing up to Russia. Thank you very much. So I feel pretty confident that Chomsky didn't make uh, either of those points. But I'll bet that another point that he didn't make is the link to nuclear power and how there has already quite arguably been Russian nuclear terrorism in Ukraine. Now, this past Tuesday, April 26th, was International Chernobyl Disaster Remembrance Day, thusly designated by the United Nations, marking the day in 1986 when an explosion at uh, then-Soviet Ukraine's Chernobyl nuclear power plant spread a radioactive cloud over large parts of Eastern Europe. Nearly 8.4 million people in the territories of what is now Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia were exposed to the radiation, and it is widely considered the world's worst nuclear disaster. I feel the um, necessity to add so far. Now, the Chernobyl plant is no longer operational, and in fact, there's a wide no-go zone around it, which is still radioactive today, from that day in April 1986, when one of the four reactors at the complex exploded. Nonetheless, the site still requires constant management, because it still contains 
radioactive fuel rods with some 230 kilograms or 500 pounds of uranium, and they are submerged in water with an active cooling system. If power were cut off to the site or the technicians there, who I hope are very well paid, <laughs> stop maintaining the cooling system, the water would very quickly evaporate, the fuel rods would overheat, and it would cause a radioactive fire. So uh, this was the situation, which has obtained at the site ever since 1986, and it was the situation when the site was seized by Russian forces on February 24th, the first day of the invasion. And uh, for several weeks, they were in control there, creating what um, Rafael Grossi, the head of the United Nations International Atomic Energy Agency, called a, quote, very, very dangerous situation, end quote, during which radiation levels were raised, although they have now returned to normal, <clears throat> again, quote, unquote, normal, itself a problematic word, as we have noted. The Russian military were in control of the site through the end of March, abandoning it when they shifted strategy in the war to concentrate on the east. During that time, some 200 Ukrainian technicians were held as virtual prisoners inside the plant, working without relief, quote, under enormous stress without the necessary rest, end quote, according to an investigation by the International Atomic Energy Agency. During brief calls that they were allowed, the technicians told family members of headaches, dizziness, nausea, and extreme fatigue. Monstrously reckless. Russian forces also apparently dug trenches in the most contaminated part of the Chernobyl exclusion zone, as it is called, where they received significant doses of radiation. The trenches were dug in the uh, contaminated so-called Red Forest, thusly named because thousands of pine trees there turned red during the 1986 disaster. The area is considered so radioactive that not even highly specialized Chernobyl workers are allowed to enter the zone. And that's where Russia sent soldiers to dig trenches without any protective gear. Reportedly, several such soldiers are being treated at a medical facility in Gomel, Belarus. Perhaps 70 are said to be in grave condition, and uh, one apparently has died. All this is being investigated by the International Atomic Energy Agency, whose chief, Rafael Grossi, actually visited the site after it was uh, returned to Ukrainian control at the end of March. Okay, then there is the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear plant, a still-functioning complex which remains in Russian hands. A six-reactor complex, the largest in Europe, seized in early March, and at that time was struck with Russian artillery, causing a fire to break out in the complex, causing Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Koleba to protest on Twitter, quote, Fire has already broken out. If it blows up, it will be 10 times larger than Chernobyl. Russians must immediately seize fire, allow firefighters in, and establish a security zone, exclamation point, end quote. And Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, accused Russia of nuclear terror 
unquote. Once again, the uh, staff and technicians at the plant are working at gunpoint, according to the Ukrainian state nuclear company, Energo Atom. But even though the Zapronitsa plant is still being operated by Ukrainian staff literally under the gun, the Russian nuclear energy company, Rosatom, is now claiming to have assumed ownership of the plant in what can be called a hostile takeover, just about as hostile as a takeover can get. And I do not see this Russian recklessness as stupidity. I view it as environmental terrorism, intentional terrorization of the civilian populace. And there's a couple of points that need to be made in this regard. First, to um, state again the one we started off with, that this is already an escalation on the ladder of nuclear terror on the part of Russia. But secondly, that being against nuclear weapons isn't enough. And we must also forthrightly oppose nuclear power, because the radiation is just as deadly from either. And it's the same nuclear industrial complex, whether Russian or American or European or Chinese, that produces both. And the risks are inherent to both. Because, to use the vernacular, shit happens, whether war, tsunami, earthquake, or human error, accident. Shit happens. Shit inevitably happens. And playing the odds that it won't with technology this dangerous is criminally reckless. It may not rise to nearly the same level of criminality as what I believe is Putin's intentional employment of recklessness as a form of psychological terror, but it ultimately enables that kind of thing. And I'll point out that it isn't just the risk of accident or war, but the certainty of contamination at every stage of the nuclear cycle, mining the uranium, processing the fuel, operation of reactors with intermittent routine emissions of radioactive gases, and finally, disposal of the waste and the contaminated reactor sites themselves at the end of the cycle. Now, of course, the runner-up to Chernobyl as the world's worst nuclear disaster was the March 2011 Fukushima disaster in Japan, sparked by an earthquake and tsunami which caused three of the six reactors at the Fukushima complex to go out of control, simply due to loss of power to the control room, not even structural damage from the earthquake, but merely the electricity going out and the backup generator being disabled by the tsunami. And Fukushima has disappeared from the headlines, but the disaster is by no means over. Some recent news clips that uh, you probably did not notice January 27th, 2022, Fukushima survivors sue TEPCO over cancers. Six young Japanese men and women will sue the Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, over claims that they developed thyroid cancer due to exposure to radiation after the Fukushima meltdown. The plaintiffs, now aged between 17 and 27, were living in the region at the time of the disaster. They are to file a class action lawsuit seeking a total 
of 600 million yen, about five and a half million dollars in compensation. March 13, 2022, Japan High Court orders damages for Fukushima victims. Japan's Supreme Court upheld an order for utility TEPCO to pay damages of 1.4 billion yen, around $12 million, to some 3,700 people whose lives were devastated by the Fukushima nuclear disaster, the first decision of its kind. The average payout of about 380,000 yen, a mere $3,290 for each plaintiff, covered three class action lawsuits among more than 30 against the utility. $3,290 for having your life devastated, for losing your home, your health, being forced to relocate. That's like not even a month's rent, at least here in Manhattan. I mean, not for me because I'm rent controlled, but for most people. (laughs) Okay, March 20th, 2022. Fate of Fukushima nuclear reactor cleanup uncertain. The Japanese government has set a decommissioning roadmap for the Fukushima nuclear power plant, aiming for completion in 29 years. That's not 29 years from 2011. When the accident happened, 29 years from now, 2022, the challenge of removing melted fuel from the reactors is so daunting that some experts now say that setting a completion target is impossible, especially as officials still don't have any idea about where to store the waste. So it is just so obvious that this technology is monstrously irresponsible, but the industry just won't quit with their propaganda offensive, to clean up its image and revive it. Typical headline on the uh, website, Industry Booster website, AtomicInsights.com. Quote, science has falsified the no-safe-dose hypothesis about radiation. Now what? Well, has in fact the science falsified it? You can Google it up and uh, read for yourself. I'm going to... uh, Make the countervailing case, because that's the one that really urgently needs to be made. And uh, inevitably, we get all of this sophistry about background radiation. You don't have to worry about radiation, because there's already radiation. There's background radiation. And uh, I especially love this one, the so-called banana-equivalent dose, that you can actually use a banana as a measure of radiation, because each banana contains small quantities of radioactive potassium. Now, this industry propaganda is engaging in the most base obfuscation. There is no comparison between the radioactive cesium and iodine and strontium spewed from reactors and the radioactive potassium in bananas both in terms of how radioactive they are and, critically, in terms of how they are absorbed by the body. And there are no background levels, that is to say natural background levels, of radioactive cesium or iodine. Quoting from the Environmental Protection Agency website, quote, cesium-133 is the only naturally occurring isotope and is non-radioactive. All other isotopes, including cesium-137, 
are produced by human activity, end quote. So there was no background radiation for cesium-137 before atmospheric nuclear testing and nuclear accidents such as Chernobyl and Fukushima and releases from routine emissions at nuclear plants, although in much smaller quantities. So lumping all these types of radiation together is misleading. And this banana standard is, if you will, <clears throat> comparing apples to oranges. Your body, quote-unquote, knows, so to speak, how to process the potassium in bananas. And it passes in your urine. While these new isotopes, cesium-137, iodine-131, strontium-90, are cumulative. Your body does not know how to process them because they haven't been a part of the environment over the course of human evolution. They stick around in your body and they cause damage. And this is not my opinion. This is the science. I'm going to uh, briefly quote here from a deconstruction of this propaganda written in March 2013 on the two-year anniversary of the Fukushima disaster by Stephen Starr of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the University of Missouri and the advocacy group Physicians for Social Responsibility. You can Google it up under the headline, The Implications of Massive Contamination of Japan with Radioactive Cesium. I quote, Sometimes these man-made radionucleides are compared to naturally occurring radionucleides, such as potassium-40, which is always found in bananas and other fruits. However, this is a false comparison, since naturally occurring radioactive elements are very weakly radioactive. It's like comparing a stick of dynamite to an atomic bomb. Highly radioactive fission products, such as cesium-137 and strontium-90, emit 10 to 20 million times more radiation per unit volume than does potassium-40. So, which of these would you rather have in your bananas? End quote. But the public relations value of the so-called banana equivalent dose was made clear in a BBC account on this propaganda device. Quote, what bananas tell us about radiation? <laughs> End quote. <clears throat> okay, from the text, quote, the standard measure of the biological effect of radiation is the savert. One savert is a heck of a big dose, but one-tenth of a millionth of a savert, or 0.1 microsavert, is roughly the dose from eating one banana. So we can use one banana as our basic unit and convert other radiation exposures to so many bananas. But why bother converting this to bananas? Partly because it is hoped that BED, banana equivalent dose, is friendlier than saverts and grays and rads and rems and all the other paraphernalia. Think about eating 20 million bananas equal to a dose causing severe, sometimes fatal, radiation poisoning. You'd probably die from something other than the radiation well before you were anywhere near 20 million. Do not attempt this at home. Even over an 80-year lifetime, it's nearly 700 bananas 
a day, end quote. So this is all about public relations and nothing else, because a savert sounds really scary, and we all have these scary associations with it, whereas a banana equivalent dose sounds fun and wacky and clever, and oh, we're so clever now, we don't worry about radiation anymore. Okay, then there's uh, the dogma that the famous no-safe-dose dictum is outdated. The dictum which was most famously articulated by Dr. Carl Morgan, the so-called father of health physics, in an article he wrote for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists in September 1978, entitled Cancer and Low-Level Ionizing Radiation, in which he stated, quote, there is no safe level of exposure and there is no dose of radiation so low that the risk of malignancy is zero. Now, the industry wants us to reject this as old-fashioned thinking today, but is it? Actually, no. In July 2005, a panel of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, charged with investigating the dangers of low-dose ionizing radiation, concluded, quote, it is unlikely that a threshold exists for the induction of cancers. Further, there are extensive data on radiation-induced transmissible mutations in mice and other organisms. There is therefore no reason to believe that humans would be immune to this sort of harm, end quote. And uh, finally, I'm going to quote from a piece uh, that ran in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists on April 26th. Chernobyl Remembrance Day 2011, in the immediate aftermath of the Fukushima disaster, entitled Radiation Exposure and the Power of Zero, by Jeffrey Patterson of the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, and a former president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, and a member of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. I quote, there are some basic principles to consider when the impacts of radiation exposure are evaluated. First, there is no safe or non-harmful level of radiation. Secondly, we are all exposed to radiation, background radiation emitted by natural sources, with which we evolved, and medical radiation, which may be necessary and life-saving, as decided and controlled by the patient and physician. But finally, there is another form of radiation that has been thrust upon the world since the advent of the nuclear age. Radiation released by the mining and processing of nuclear fuel, the testing and use of nuclear weapons, and the controlled and catastrophic releases of long-lived radionuclides by the nuclear power industry. This is quite a different issue because the effects of these releases will continue for many years but will likely remain hidden or unknown worldwide. An unknowing and unsuspecting public is being randomly exposed to radiation without any opportunity for informed consent. People can choose whether or not to have x-rays to reduce the radon exposure in their homes or to fly. However, the public has no choice and certainly inadequate knowledge about radiation exposure from nuclear power and nuclear weapons, end quote. Thank you very much, Jeffrey Patterson.
of the University of Wisconsin School for Medicine and Public Health. Yet the industry worldwide is forging ahead with its plans for a new wave of nuclear expansion. China, at the moment, is preparing a massive expansion of its nuclear energy sector, akin to what the United States saw in the 1970s. Just the most recent of many such headlines from the industry website, World Nuclear News. April 21st, 2022, China approves construction of six new reactors. After years of preparation and comprehensive evaluation and review, the three nuclear power unit projects at Sanmen in Zhejiang province, Haiyang in Shandong province, and Lufeng in Guangdong province, which have all been included in the national plan, were approved by the state council. Not good. And this is right on the heels of a nuclear accident in China, which received very little coverage, but uh, as we noted, In the last podcast we did on this question, last August, August 2021, there was an emergency shutdown and apparently a radiation release, although the authorities were very hush-hush about it, typically, at the Taishan nuclear plant in Guangdong province. And even here in the United States, where the industry has been largely moribund for over a generation, they just won't stop trying for a comeback. Okay. You want a reason to hate Bill Gates, all you conspiracy freaks with your bogus conspiracy theories about the COVID-19 vaccination? Here's a legitimate reason to hate Bill Gates. From the Associated Press, January 18th, 2022, in this tiny Wyoming town, Bill Gates bets big on nuclear power. Quote, Dateline Kemmerer, Wyoming, Associated Press. In this sleepy Wyoming town that has relied on coal for over a century, a company founded by the man who revolutionized personal computing is launching an ambitious project to counter climate change, a nationwide reboot of nuclear energy. Until recently, Kemmerer was little known for anything except J.C. Penney's first store, and uh, some 55 million-year-old fish fossils in quarries down the road. Then in November, a company started by Bill Gates, TerraPower, announced it had chosen Kemmerer for a non-traditional sodium-cooled nuclear reactor that will bring on workers from a local coal-fired power plant scheduled to close soon. The demonstration project comes as many U.S. states see nuclear emerging as an answer to fill the gap in a transition away from coal, oil, and natural gas to reduce greenhouse emissions, end quote. And this is really maddening. First, every few months, you know, they come up with some new non-traditional, you know, reactor, as if some tweaks in the design, you know, merely do away with all of the fundamental problems with this technology. But even more maddening, this attempt to, you know, greenwash nuclear power. And there's a lot of this going on from people who uh, you would kind of hope wouldn't be going along with this kind of thing. The famous climate scientist James Hansen recently wrote in Scientific American, nuclear power must make a comeback for climate's sake. And a more recent example, quite frustratingly, is uh, 
provided by an old friend and comrade of mine, Charlie Komanoff, longtime activist opponent of both the fossil fuel and nuclear industries. But I now fear he is faltering in this latter category. Now, he's above all a numbers cruncher and an analyst, his latest project being the Carbon Tax Center. So I certainly don't claim to have the mathematics chops to be able to challenge him on those terms, but I still submit he is missing some critical points in his April 4th, 2022 piece in The Nation magazine entitled The Case Against Closing Nuclear Power Plants. And most painfully, he mostly focuses in this piece on the two plants that I've personally been most involved in trying to get shut down over the years. The uh, Indian Point plant, just um, some 30 miles up the Hudson River from Manhattan, one of the oldest nuclear plants in the country, which was finally shut down in 2020, and the uh, Diablo Canyon nuclear plant on the central coast of California, which I uh, blockaded as a protester in the massive civil disobedience campaign to stop it from opening back in the 1980s. It's built on an earthquake fault, so it's basically a Fukushima waiting to happen. It is now finally scheduled to be closed in 2025. But I will point out something that uh, my buddy Charlie does not mention, that in April 2020, two years ago, there was a leak and shutdown at Diablo Canyon, prompting a review by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which found, quote, failures of oversight at the plant. Not exactly comforting, given that we've still got three years to go before it's shut down. But now Charles Komodoff writes in his piece in The Nation, Quote, existing plants like Diablo Canyon obviate the need to draw on fossil fuel generators and should remain in service. That's how the piece begins. Then he goes on to demonstrate in his numbers crunching routine that uh, indeed the slack from Indian Point being shut down is being taken up by uh, gas fired generators here in New York State and uh, that the same is likely to transpire in California after the shutdown of Diablo Canyon. And he closes, quote, Others can debate whether to build new nuclear plants to combat the climate crisis, but no one can deny that letting existing reactors like Diablo Canyon remain in service keeps fossil fuels in the ground and their carbon emissions out of our atmosphere. We ignore that benefit at our peril, end quote. Well, yeah, Charlie, actually, I do deny that because it is predicated on the assumption of society as currently constituted remaining that way. And that is exactly the assumption we need to challenge. Now, God knows there are no easy answers or pain-free solutions. But as long as we take it as a fait accompli, that new skyscrapers are going to keep going up, even green ones, and that Las Vegas is going to keep blazing away in all its glory day and night, and that we can base our economies on such ultra-wasteful and pointless activities as Bitcoin mining, we aren't even having the conversation that needs to be had. 
And it's such a blatant contradiction that, you know, on one hand, we're all supposed to be so concerned with climate change. And on the other hand, our new mayor here in New York City, Eric Adams, is like plugging Bitcoin as the city's economic future. People are probably aware that there's a uh, a Bitcoin boom going on in Puerto Rico right now, which uh, is resulting in crypto-driven gentrification forcing out the locals as all this foreign investment pours in, Boricoas being displaced first in New York City by gentrification and now on their own island. And now the Central African Republic, of all places, one of the poorest countries on earth and torn by years of devastating war, is the latest to adopt Bitcoin as its official currency. I mean, how on earth do we square it? All this incessant hand-wringing about global warming, and it's like verboten to question this crypto shit, because it's just so cool and bitchin' and high-tech and futuristic and fashionable. A report from uh, Upstate New York, to kind of put things in perspective, that appeared on the uh, Technology Review website, April 18th, 2022, how Bitcoin mining devastated this New York town. Between rising energy rates and soaring climate costs, crypto mining is taking a toll on communities. I quote, in 2020, the world's crypto mining required more energy than the whole of Switzerland. At the time, Plattsburgh, New York, had some of the least expensive power anywhere in the United States thanks to the cheap hydroelectricity from the Niagara Power Authority. It didn't take long for a subsidiary of the popular mining firm CoinMint to lease a family dollar store in Plattsburgh, followed by a slew of others. Jumping forward, in January 2018, there was a cold snap. People turned up their heat and plugged in space heaters. The city quickly exceeded its quota of hydropower, forcing it to buy power elsewhere at much higher rates. Energy bills jumped by 30 to $40 a month. As the long winter began to thaw, neighbors noticed a new disturbance. Mining servers generate an extreme amount of heat, requiring extensive ventilation to avert shutoffs. Those fans generated a constant high-frequency whine. End quote. April 18th story from Technology Review website on the impacts of uh, crypto mining on Plattsburgh, New York. Gee, sounds really great. I mean, it is so out of whack that this is what we have to keep nuclear reactors running for. And we say we're serious about addressing global warming and then base our economies on this socially useless energy-intensive jive. And I will point out as a warning to the leaders of the Central African Republic that last year, when El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as official currency, it sparked a mass uprising. And even if it was not their conscious motivation, I say that the masses who took to the streets and shut down El Salvador last September were on the front lines of fighting climate change. All right, let me try to wrap things up here. Getting back to the question of nuclear weapons, 
it's imperative that we support the treaty to ban them, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which actually came into force last year when the needed minimum of 50 countries ratified it, but not including any of the nine nuclear-armed countries, of course. We should still press for the advance of this treaty, absolutely. But here's where I'm going to make my uh, peacenik pals unhappy by pointing out that the Putin regime making nuclear threats is a big obstacle to the advance of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The more he does this kind of thing, the more difficult it's going to be to get the nuclear-armed states of the West, and those under its nuclear umbrella, so to speak, to even consider the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or any other moves toward disarmament. So we should also be avidly supporting regime change in Russia hopefully by a revolutionary upheaval within Russia. And at such time as that happens, which will hopefully be very soon, we must support it and not immediately reject it as CIA Soros AstroTurf color revolution, as Gray Zone and Max Blumenthal and Aaron Mate will doubtless be urging us to do. And finally, we must get back to the understanding advanced by the anti-nuclear movement more than a generation ago, that nuclear weapons and nuclear power are a part of the same Leviathan and fundamentally inseparable, and both need to be opposed. And you don't have to wait for nuclear terror, as we just saw in Ukraine. The same cycle of uranium mining, fuel processing, waste disposal, with all of the genocidal impacts that we discussed in our last podcast on the matter, is common to both. Now, this damn war in Ukraine could be a wake-up call for the long-overdue, urgently-mandated crash conversion from fossil fuels. And remember, in World War II, recycling and rationing were instituted, and there were propaganda slogans like, Is this trip necessary? We need to accept such a rollback of profligance today. And also, as in the FDR era, demand social intervention to cushion the impacts on those at the bottom of the social pyramid. Although we should aspire, of course, to take it far further in terms of actual social leveling. Now, here's a little sign of hope from combined sources. Norwegian activists block tanker delivering Russian oil. Norwegian police on April 25th arrested 20 activists from the group's Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion near Asgard Strand for blocking a tanker from delivering Russian oil to an ExxonMobil terminal. Activists set off in kayaks across the Oslo Fjord and attempted to block the tanker Ustluga from delivering an estimated 95,000 tons of Russian oil to Norway by chaining themselves to the vessel's anchor. Wow! Now, these guys have got their eyes on the ball, and they are also on the front lines of fighting climate change. And I am going to hope and assume that they also oppose nuclear power. And, uh, I'm just going to close off here rather uncharacteristically by reading a poem, The Long Death, written by Marge Piercy 
back in 1980, ironically before the Chernobyl and Fukushima disasters, when public awareness of the dangers of radiation was at its highest. I don't often indulge in poetry, but this sums up things very well. The Long Death by Marge Piercy. Radiation is like oppression. The average daily kind of subliminal toothache you almost get used to. The stench of chlorine in the water, of smog in the wind. We comprehend the disasters of the moment, the nursing home fire, the river in flood pouring over the sandbag levee, the airplane crash with fragments of burnt bodies scattered among the hunks of twisted metal, the grenade in the marketplace, the sinking ship. But how to grasp a thing that does not kill you today or tomorrow, but slowly from inside in 20 years? How to feel that a corporate or governmental choice means that we bear twisted genes and our grandchildren will be stillborn if our children are very lucky. Slow death cannot be photographed for the 6 o'clock news. It's all statistical, the gross national product or the prime lending rate. Yet if our eyes saw it in the right spectrum, how it would shine, lurid as magenta neon. If we could smell radiation like seeping gas, if we could sense it as heat, if we could hear it as a low, ominous roar of the earth shifting, then we would not sit and be poisoned while industry spokesmen talk of acceptable millirems and 0.20 cancer per population thousand. We acquiesce at murder so long as it is slow. Murder from asbestos dust, from tobacco, from lead in the water, from sulfur in the air. And 14 years later, statistics are printed on the rise of leukemia among children. We never see their faces. They never stand, these poisoned children, together in a courtyard and are gunned down by men in three-piece suits. The shipyard workers who built nuclear submarines the soldiers who were marched into the Nevada desert to be tested by the H-bomb, the people who work in power plants, they die quietly, years after, in hospital ward, and are not on the evening news. The soft spring rain floats down and the air is perfumed with pine and earth. Seedlings drink it in, robins sop it in puddles, you run at it and feel clean and strong. The spring rain blowing from the irradiated cloud over the power plant. Radiation is oppression. The daily average kind. The kind you're almost used to and live with as the years abrade you. High blood pressure, ulcers, cramps, migraine, a hacking cough. You take it inside, and it becomes pain, and you say not, they are killing me, but I am sick now. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where everything I said over the course of this rant is hyperlinked and documented. 
Please support us on Patreon. We need your support to keep going. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.